Sunday, the Sunday before 4th of July. We're grateful for the freedoms that we have still in this country. And we know that many people around the world are meeting under the cloak of night and hiding. And here we are in the United States, able to gather and worship you as we please. We know that that was a gift that was not inexpensive. It was paid through the blood of many, many people. And so we thank you for that. We ask that we would do uh, proper homage to that today on this special Sunday. And we do ask, Lord, as your word is taught, we do ask for the uh, illuminating ministry of the Spirit. We ask that the Spirit would take the word of God and the truths of God and uh, apply them to the deepest needs of our lives particularly as we look at some controversial and what the world would call politically incorrect subject matter. In preparation for that ministry, Lord, we're just going to take a few moments of silence and um, do personal business with you by way of confession of sins so, so that we can be prepared for the illuminating ministry of the Spirit. We're thankful, Lord, that our position before you doesn't change. We're eternally secure, but we can do things in our natural selves, sinful selves that break fellowship. And when that happens, it inhibits our ability in a worship service where the word of God is taught to receive fully from you. So we thank you for the provision that you've made for us in every area, including 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. I pray you'll be with us as we celebrate the Lord's table, and also the fellowship meal that follows. We'll be careful to give you all the praise and the glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name. God's people said, amen. Amen. Happy Independence Day to everybody. Almost Independence Day, the Sunday before Independence Day. If you could uh, take your Bibles this morning and open them to the book of Romans. Chapter 1, verse 18, I want to thank Pastor Jim for doing such a good job last week in uh, Sunday school and the main service. In fact, his sermon on sin, whoever preaches on sin anymore, goodness gracious, um, I think is going to go pretty well with what we're going to talk about today. The title of our messages, because this was so big, I have to break it into two parts. So what we don't finish in the first hour, Lord willing, we'll finish in the second hour. But the title of our messages is as follows, Is America Under the Judgment of God? And to help us with that, we're going to work verse by verse today through Romans chapter 1, verse 18, through verse 32. And we're going to get to the end of this, and you're going to say, this is the most depressing thing I've ever heard. But at the end of the second session, we're going to leave on a note of optimism. So just hold on to your hat, if you could. 
Keep your seatbelt buckled at all times. So when we talk about, is America under the judgment of God, that raises a a fundamental question. Does God actually judge nations? You know, the idea is, some people think God only judges people because only people have a soul. But notice what George Mason said. George Mason, if you enjoy your Second Amendment rights as a Texan, um, you wouldn't have those without the influence of George Mason. George Mason is someone who is called the father of the Bill of Rights. The first ten amendments to the United States Constitution, which act as a handcuff, handcuffs, not on the citizenry, but on the government. That's who George Mason was. And he made this statement. He said, as nations cannot be rewarded or punished in the next world, because they don't have souls like people, so they must be rewarded or punished, he says, in this world. He says, by an inevitable chain of causes and effects, providence punishes national sins by national calamities. So he was of the perspective that God does judge nations. He just does it pretty quick in the here and now, because if God were to wait in the afterlife, there'd be nothing to judge, because a nation is not eternal, unlike a person. Um, I'm thinking of the famous quip by Billy Graham, who said, if God does not judge America, he owes Sodom and Gomorrah an apology. (laughs) And so when we talk about God judging nations, you know, we ask, well, how does God do it? Does he send a lightning bolt? Does he send a tsunami? The truth of the matter is when you look at this subject of judgment in the scripture, there are five kinds of divine judgments. The first is what we call historical judgment, where God directly judges something. The global flood, obviously, would be an example of that, Genesis 7 and 8, as would be the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. The second form of judgment is eschatological. That would be Revelation 6 through 19, the events of the tribulation period. Sometimes the judgment of God, although it's a slightly different category, takes the form of divine discipline. Whom the Lord loves, the Lord what? Chastens. Hebrews 12, 5 through 11. Sometimes the judgment of God manifests itself in the law of sowing and reaping. Galatians 6, verses 7 and 8, you reap what you sow. You sow bad seed, you reap bad fruit, etc. And sometimes there's a more frightening judgment of God And you see it there with number five. It's called divine abandonment. Where God gives nations over to what they want to do. Um, As you study divine abandonment, you'll see it all over the Bible. This is something that happened to Samson. And it says of Samson in Judges 16 verse 20, but he, that Samson, did not know that the Lord had departed from him. The same thing happened to Saul, 1 Samuel 16, verse 14. It says, now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. 
And it's that uh, fifth form of judgment that I believe the United States of America is in right now. It's just like Samson. Most people don't realize it's happening. And there's no passage of Scripture that more clearly explains this than Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 24. Now, it's been a long time since we were teaching Romans in this church. In fact, I think we were teaching it before we even had video camera. It's just audio. So just a little reminder of the book of Romans. The book of Romans is about the righteousness of God. And um, it's laid out almost like a court case. In fact, if you were to back up in American history and go into our law schools, pre-Darwin age, um, they actually used the book of Romans as an explanation to lawyers on how to lay out a case. Because our jurists understood the, how logical, the logical flow of the book of Romans So since it's a book about salvation, you can't get a man saved unless you get him lost first. (laughs) Because unless you realize you're drowning, there's no incentive to reach out to the Savior. So there's a section there in the book of Romans called Sin. Romans 1, chapter 1, verse 18 through chapter 3, verse 20. I notice our attendance dwindled when I was teaching that a few years back here. Not exactly seeker-friendly stuff. But you can take the subject matter of sin and divide it further. God's condemnation of the Gentiles, God's condemnation of the moralist, God's condemnation of the Jew. And if that weren't enough, Paul just condemns the whole world. And it's this section right here, the condemnation of the Gentile. When you see this, you'll see exactly where the United States of America is. So that's why we're looking at that section today. Um, There's a lot of bad news at the onset, but as I'm going to show you as we get to the end of this, there's some real optimism and there's some real hope as well. So we want to leave here being realists, uh, but we don't want to leave here being pessimists about everything. So we can take the condemnation of the Gentile and divide it into four parts. And so let's just go right ahead here and begin with part number one. Part number one is the revelation and the reason for God's wrath. And notice, if you will, Romans chapter 1, verse 18. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. Now that word revealed is the Greek word apocalypsis, which means unveiling. You probably will recognize it because that is the word that is used for the title of the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible. Revelation 1 verse 1, the title of Revelation is the revelation of Jesus Christ, which is the same Greek word apocalypsis that's used right here for uh, unveiling in Romans chapter 1 verse 18. So what Paul is saying is the wrath of God is disclosed. The wrath of God is happening right now to the Gentile world, to the United States. 
I mean, you don't have to wait for it to happen. It's currently happening. And he goes on and he gives, um, before that, he gives the description of what's happening when he uses this expression, wrath. I mean, what is revealed? The wrath of God. The Greek word for wrath is orge. Uh, it's um, a word that can be used to describe various sexual terms. So it's speaking of passion without any control on it, like an orgy, for example. But here it's not being used in the sexual sense, it's being used in the anger sense. It's a, it's a manifestation of divine anger, which has no limits on it. Paul says you don't have to wait for it to come, it's happening right now. It's just not your typical Sodom and Gomorrah situation or seven-year tribulation situation, which will involve the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, and the bowl judgments. It's happening right now in terms of that fifth form of divine wrath called divine abandonment. So what is God so angry about? Um, you know, my wife will ask me that sometimes. She'll see me upset. What are you mad at? Sometimes I don't even know what I'm mad at. I'm just mad, you know. So what what is God so angry about? Well, it's right there in verse 18. This is not rocket science. It's just reading what he says. For the wrath of God is revealed, apocalypsis, from heaven against all ungodliness and righteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. What is God upset about? He is upset about ungodliness and unrighteousness. Well, that raises a very interesting question. What what do you mean by ungodliness and unrighteousness? Can you be more specific? I mean, what specific thing is the Gentile world, is the United States of America doing against God that puts us into the category nationally of ungodliness and unrighteousness, well, he explains what he means by it at the end of verse 18. Against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress, you should underline that word suppress, verse 18. They suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Oh, that's what he's upset about. Suppress is an active verb. Um, It's not something that's neutral. It's something that people go out and they actively do. And to be a suppressor of truth requires a lot of hard work. So the human mind is constantly at work trying to suppress, trying to, using modern-day vernacular, trying to cancel, (laughs) trying to cancel a knowledge of God. And that's what God is upset about. That's why his anger uh, is, is currently being manifested. Which takes us to part two of the outline, and it deals here, verses 19 and 20, with God's self revelation in creation. What are people suppressing? What people are suppressing is the very clear revelation of God that exists in all of creation. And this active suppression 
renders mankind inexcusable before God. So he describes here God's self-disclosure. Gee, I wish God would disclose himself. I wish he would come out of the closet so we could see who God is. And God says, are you kidding me? Look, look at the world you're living in. I mean, it's obvious I exist. And it's obvious I exist. You have a duty and a responsibility as a human being who has a mind to not suppress my disclosure in creation, but rather to seek me out. So it's very obvious that God exists, according to Romans chapter 1, um, because you don't have creation without a creator. You can't have design without a designer. So you look at the fact that, you know, of the 8 billion people on planet Earth, no, no two people have exactly the same, same fingerprints. Um, you look at the fact that of all of the snowflakes that have fallen in human history, when examined under a microscope, none are exactly the same. When you look at the fact that here we are in our heliocentric solar system on planet Earth, rotating around the sun, and we're not so close to the sun that we burn up, although it kind of feels like that the last few days here in the state of Texas. And we're not so far away from the sun that we freeze to death. I mean, we orbit around the sun at exactly the proper distance for life to exist. I mean, you look at all of this stuff and God says, you know, it's just, it's just absolutely inexcusable that people would think that all of this came about by an accident any more than a hurricane, you know, or a tornado goes through a junkyard and assembles a 747. I mean, that kind of stuff doesn't happen. Well, why in the world would people think that God doesn't exist when they look at the delicacy and the intricacy of our creative world in which we live in? This is what the human mind is suppressing all of the time. I like what uh, Lee Strobel tweeted recently. He says, to continue in atheism, I need to believe that nothing produces everything. Non-life produces life. Randomness produces fine-tuning. Chaos produces information. Unconsciousness produces consciousness. And non-reason produces reason. And I like this last sentence here. I just don't have enough, I just don't have that much faith. I think the title of a book that Norman Geisler wrote is entitled, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. I mean, you can be an atheist if you want, but you're just going to have to work real hard. You're going to have to work real hard denying the obvious. It's, it's like trying to explain away the Atlantic Ocean. And to be this uh, jaded against God requires a mind that goes out of its way to suppress what's obvious. And so this is why God is angry. This is why his wrath is now kindled, and now the human race is experiencing it, not in a Sodom and Gomorrah sense, but in the sense of divine abandonment. And this issue of God speaking clearly in creation is particularly pertinent to the United States of America 
because our rights come from God. But what we're before we get to that, what we're dealing with here is what's called general revelation. General revelation is different than special revelation. Maybe this chart will help. Some examples of general revelation would be nature and conscience. It's obvious there's a lawgiver because there's a legal standard in people. And I like to use the example of, if you don't believe that, if you have two kids at home, say, if you mow the lawn, I'll take you to Dairy Queen. You tell the other kid, if you mow the lawn, I'll take you to Disney World. And the, sec- the first kid is going to say, that's not fair. Well, who, who, wait a minute. Who gave you any idea that things are supposed to be fair? Well, they have a legal barometer inside of them called conscience. It's in Romans 2, 14 and 15. Um, that's what you call natural revelation. What we're dealing with here in creation is another form of it. Special revelation is a little different. It deals with the incarnation of Christ, Scripture, miracles. General revelation is available to everybody. Special revelation is available to some. General revelation, the only thing it can do is it can render you accountable to search for truth. That's why God wants people to search for truth, because they have evidence that he exists. It doesn't contain the sufficient information for salvation, but you're accountable to search for what the truth is. Um, Special revelation gives you what's needed to go to heaven, the information that's needed. General revelation is basically non-written or non-verbal. Special revelation, when we're talking about the scripture, is written down. Even Jesus is called the Word. General revelation is of sort of a natural quality. Special revelation is supernatural, like the incarnation, miraculous, etc. So we're not even dealing here with the category of special revelation. We're dealing with general revelation. General revelation in creation, general revelation in conscience. Now, the geniuses, and I, I call them that because I don't think there was ever a collection of people that understood issues like this better than our founding fathers, as much as they've been demonized and disparaged by everybody. They very, very wisely, in America's birth certificate, 1776, connected our rights to God. Why could they do that? Because God has disclosed himself in in creation. So when you go through the Declaration of Independence, you'll see we, you know, I think it mentions God five or six times. The most prominent part there is we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are evolved equally. Oh, sorry, I didn't say that. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equally. They are endowed by their... Creator with certain unalienable rights. Atheists did not found the United States of America. People that believed in God founded the United States of America. In fact, all of the, I'll make a mention of this a little bit later, but all of the universities that were started in the United States of America, every single one of them was started by Bible-believing Christians. The only one that came as a Johnny-come-lately 
long after the founding era was over, was MIT, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, founded by atheists, long after the founding era. You go back to America's foundation, every single school was founded by what we would call biblicists. And you'll notice this expression here, unalienable rights. Um, It means a right without a lien attached to it. If I have a lien against your house, your house doesn't belong to you, it belongs to me. If you sell the house, I get the proceeds. By using this expression, unalienable rights, what they're saying is we possess rights in this country because they come from God. They're without a lien. Man can't take them away because they're not given by man. They're given only by God. John Adams, the second president of the United States, says rights are antecedent to all earthly governments. Rights cannot be repealed or restrained by human law. Rights are derived from the great legislature of the universe. You'll notice that the Declaration of Independence and John Adams did not say, oh, these rights are yours unless a pandemic comes up. Then the government has a right to shut down your churches, your businesses. They didn't say that. And don't be fooled into the silly logic that these people didn't know what pandemics were. If you study what they went through, there were pandemics constantly. And they never put an exception clause in here. So to this, I just say praise the Lord that we live in a country, and it's one of the few countries of the earth that does this that anchors its rights not in government but God. Because if you live in a country that anchors its rights in government, then one day the government can give and the government can take. Well, that's not how it works in the United States. Our rights are ours because they come from God and not not man. Hey, why would you guys at Sugarland Bible Church waste a whole week taking a bunch of kids to the Grand Canyon to study flood geology? Well, here's the issue. If you get a generation of children that does not understand God and his role in creation and flood, you'll have a generation of people that will give up their rights in a second because they don't connect it with God. So if you want freedom to be maintained in the United States of America, we better start talking God, God, God all the time to the youth. And you better start explaining to them that our rights in this country come from God. Or else a generation will arise that thinks, oh, it's okay for the government to shut down a church. Because after all, our rights come from the government. I want to show you how this thinking that rights come from government, how prominent this thought process is. You remember Janet Reno? Uh, she was in charge, attorney general at the time. She was in charge of the Clinton Justice Department, which to me is an oxymoron, Clinton Justice Department, but we won't go there. I mean, this is the leading law enforcement agent over the whole country at the time, and this was right after that Waco disaster, you remember? 
She made this statement, and it was recorded in the Wall Street Journal at the time. She says, you are part of a government that has given its people more freedom than any other government in the history of the world. Wrong, 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 wrong. Janet, government does not give rights. God gives rights. That's what the Declaration of Independence says. Government exists to protect pre-existing rights. And here she's completely left God out of the equation. Watch very carefully these more progressive politicians that we have today as they quote the Declaration of Independence. And I'm not trying to bring up people as a Democrat-Republican issue. This is a spiritual problem. But when Obama, and you can watch it on YouTube, was quoting the Declaration of Independence... He gets to the word God, creator, etc., which are clearly in the text, and he just leaves it out. Um, Joe Biden is not much better. When he got to God, he said, oh, you know, the thing. And, you know, we it's, it's easy to kind of chuckle at that, but I'm, I'm here to tell you that that is so serious because it's a removal of God from the equation. And if you remove God from the equation, you throw out the concept of unalienable rights. Let me give you this quote from Alexander um, Solzhenitsyn, if I'm pronouncing this right, talking about the Russian Revolution. He says, over a half century ago, while I was still a child, I recall hearing a number of old people offering the following explanation for the great disasters that had fallen Russia. Men have forgotten God. That's why all of this has happened. Speaking of the communist revolution in Russia, 1917. You probably may know this, maybe not, but Russia used to be a Christian Orthodox country got overthrown internally, a communist revolution. The quote continues, Since then, I have spent well nigh 50 years recording on the history of our revolution, and in the process, I have read hundreds of books, collected hundreds of personal testimonies, and have already contributed eight volumes of my own toward the effort of clearing away the rubble left by the upheaval. But if I were asked today to formulate as concisely as possible the main cause of the ruinous revolution that swallowed up 60 million of our people. (laughs) Boy, a lot to talk about with 60 million. Do you realize that with the Nuremberg trials in Nazi Germany, we put the Nazis on trial so everybody could see what they did? We never did that with Marxism. This is why most people are completely unaware of the ravages of Marxism uh, all over the world. If you want a great book on this and you want to see it all documented, get the, I think it's called the Black Book, the Black Book of Communism. And it will just document human rights violation after human rights violation after human rights violation that swept the world in the 20th century Far worse than Adolf Hitler. But most people don't know about that because we never did what the Nuremberg trial did, put the Nazis on trial. 
So he's talking about 60 million people that lost their lives. He says that swallowed up 60 million of our people. I could not put it more accurately than to repeat. He's explaining why this happened. Men have forgotten God. That's why all this happened. So when the president says the thing and another president doesn't even read God into the Declaration of Independence, what's essentially happening is history is repeating itself. And when churches won't take a stand on creation and won't equip the youth apologetically to go into the universities and keep their worldview of creation in place, you're putting... (laughs) uh, you're putting the the wheel in motion whereby unalienable rights will be completely destroyed in the United States. And gov- government at the whim, at any whim, any pandemic, plandemic, whatever you want to call it, will just shut down churches again. There was a pastor in New York that tried to keep his church open through all of that. It's all on YouTube. And it's got him arguing with the police officers out front trying to shut down his church. And it's stunning to watch what these officers say. They say, they said to him, this pastor in New York, the Constitution has been suspended. No, the Constitution is not suspended. The Constitution cannot be suspended by any man because it's anchored in who? It's anchored in God. So God is angry because he's clearly disclosed himself in creation. And men, for the most part, have suppressed that truth. So notice Romans 1, verses 19 and 20. Let's see here. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. This is why Thomas Jefferson in the Declaration of Independence anchored our rights in God. It's obvious God exists because he's disclosed himself in creation being understood through what has been made. So that men are without excuse. Human beings have a responsibility to seek God because God has made his existence obvious through creation. God expects the human race to glorify him on account of creation. That's God's expectation. But the human race has not done that. They've taken what's obvious and they've held it down and suppressed it. So the wrath of God, divine abandonment, is now unveiled against any nation that does this. And here in the United States, folks, we're doing it big time because our whole heritage comes from God. And we're, we're pretending like he doesn't exist at all. The book of Revelation, chapter 4 and verse 11, describing the praise of God in heaven. It says, "You uh, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory, honor, and power. Why should God be glorified? 
for you created all things. I mean, you look at a Picasso painting and its beauty, and the natural tendency is to glorify Picasso. What a a magnificent painting this man did. You read a Shakespearean masterpiece, and the natural tendency is to say, wow, Shakespeare was just a literary genius. He was a literary giant. And if we do that kind of thing all of the time for people that create things, God is saying, why don't you do that for me? Look at the world you're living in. You know, Psalm 139, what did David say? I am fearfully and wonderfully made. You look at the human body, you look at the human anatomy, you look at the respiratory system, the cardiovascular system, the muscular system, the heart that keeps palpitating, that keeps me, keeps me alive, and people ought to just be saying, well, praise God, look, look at what He's created. But people don't do that. Countries don't do that. They take what's obvious and they suppress it. And they hold it down in unrighteousness. Now, there's a principle in the Bible. It's in Luke 12, verse 48. To whom much is given, much is what? Required. The more light you have, the more God expects a right response. And so this is why God is angry with humanity. This is why God is angry with nations that suppress his existence. He's basically saying you ought to know better. Look at your body, look at your conscience, look at the intricacies of creation. And if this is true, to whom much is given, much is expected, America is in big trouble. You know, in fact, America is probably in more trouble than any nation on the face of the earth that I can think of because we have a tremendous Christian foundation that you don't have in other countries. This is William Blackstone, leading legal commentator at the dawn of America. very last sentence of his commentary is no... Human laws should be suffered to contradict the laws of nature and the laws of revelation. What he's saying here, and it's a great quote, I don't have time to read it all, but he's saying God has revealed himself in two sources, creation, general revelation, scripture, special revelation. So when we're coming up with laws, let's make sure we've studied what God has disclosed in those two sources, and let's come up with laws that cooperate with the fixed principles of God. This is why homosexuality at the dawn of America was called a crime against nature. He says homosexuality doesn't make any sense. Uh, Two animals of the same sex don't reproduce. Romans 1 says what it says about homosexuality. More on that later. So you go back into early America, and it was actually a crime to be a homosexual. Now, I understand I'm going to be uh, called every name in the book for saying that. I'm not even arguing necessarily we go back to all that. I'm just saying this is where we came from. This is our foundation. There is no country that's had a foundation like this. 
Christopher Columbus, I know you've heard every bad thing that could be said about the man. Most people never read what he actually said. He actually had a book, has a book. Did you know that? Do you know Christopher Columbus wrote a book? It's called the Book of Prophecies. He's explaining in his book of prophecies why he came to this country. I never learned anything like this in my public school training. <clears throat> Only thing I learned was 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. But look at what this man says. He says, our Lord opened to my understanding. I could sense his hand upon me. So it became clear to me that the voyage was feasible. All those who heard of my enterprise rejected it with laughter and scoffing. Who doubts that this illumination was from the Holy Spirit? I attest that that he with marvelous rays consoled me with the holy and sacred scriptures. They inflame me with a sense of great urgency. No one should be afraid to take on any enterprise in the name of the Savior. If it is right and if the purpose is purely for his holy service. And I say that the sign that convinces me that our Lord is hastening the end of the world is the preaching of the gospel in so many distant lands. They inflame me with a sense of great urgency. No one should be afraid to take on any enterprise in the name of the Savior if it is right and the purpose is purely his holy service. And he goes on here and he explains that the reason I came to the United States is to glorify God and to spread the gospel. Well, yeah, but Pastor Christopher Columbus did this and he did that. Let me tell you something, folks. You can take anybody's life. I can take your life. You could take my life. And if I were put under a microscope every bad thing you ever said or did, and I were to suppress every good thing you ever did, I could turn you into a monster. You could turn me into a monster. This is what historical revisionism has done to our founding fathers. Right back to Christopher Columbus. Here's the Mayflower Compact. This is the first legal document in the United States. This is... 150 years, roughly, before the Declaration of Independence. Quote, having undertaken the glory, undertaken for the glory of God and the advancement of the Christian faith and the honor of our king and country to a voyage to plant the first colony in the northern parts of Virginia. Here's how the youth were taught in the first public school system in the state of Massachusetts. It's called the old deluder Satan law. It being one chief project of the old deluder Satan to keep men from a knowledge of the scriptures. As in former time. What former time? The dark ages. The pre-Protestant Reformation dark ages. When people did not have the Bible. And they were manipulated by the priesthood. When the coin in the coffer springs, the soul from purgatory springs. Boy, the Catholic Church. You you say that to people for a thousand years, you're going to have a lot of money. Well, why didn't they just look at their Bible and refute purgatory? They didn't have a Bible. We're not going back to that, our founding fathers said. So we want everybody to be able to read and write grammar 
so that they can pick the best stocks and retire early. Oh, doesn't say that. So we can teach them the Scripture. So they won't be ignorantly, ignorant people manipulated by somebody. That's how the public school system in the United States started. This is how our founding fathers were taught to read through what's called the New England Primer. You'll notice the English alphabet comes after biblical stories. A for Adam. In Adam's sin, we, in Adam's fall, we sinned all. C, Christ crucified for sinners died. D, the deluge drowned the earth around. Thomas Jefferson, (laughs) James Madison, 